Uh, my name is Kevin, and um, I hail from Community of Faith Bible Church. Hopefully you guys are familiar with Community of Faith. Uh, pastor Anthony Kidd is the pastor over there, as well as Pastor Bobby Scott. Those are the two preaching elders there. Uh, I am not Pastor Kidd. That is my brother. I was asked to come. They started going down the list, and when they got to the bottom, I was the only one left. <laughs> so here I am. Um, I like PJ. He's a, he, he's, a, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. I, I've had the pleasure of, of sitting up under uh, his preaching ministry in a couple of occasions. One was at our men's fellowship that we had in Big Bear. Uh, where the men dealt with the book of Revelation, and the other time was in a marriage seminar. And so I gather that he's a very sharp, sharp guy. Um, and so I can deduce from that that you are a very astute congregation. So I just thank God for the limited amount of fellowship that we've had together, and I just trust that the Lord would bring us closer, even because we are here today. Um, let's pray before we begin our time in God's word. Gracious God in heaven, here we are together, Father, um, for we do know you do all things well. Father, it is no coincidence or no accidents, Lord, that you would have us to come to uh, share full moments with these, your people, Lord, in another uh, area of the city. So we just thank you for Bethany Baptist Church, Father. We thank you for its members, Father. We thank you for uh, its pastor and his absence, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would just use me uh, in a way, Lord, that would be a blessing to these your people, Father. For this I pray and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we, we, I want to be looking at 1 John for a few moments, chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, could you please turn there with us, 1 John chapter 1. And we're not going to make it through all seven verses. I was talking to PJ, and I assumed that we would have an hour and a half. And he said, no, brother, we preach about 45 minutes, so we're going to do one through four. Uh, but the theme would be the same, and we just want to look to God's word and see what he would have for us in that. First John chapter 1, and I'm going to read in our hearing verses 1 through 4. There we find these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. In looking at the Bible, we always want to try to ascertain the very purpose for any letter or writing that's given in the Gospels or in the historical books or, or whatnot. And so... What we notice in John is that he has quite a few uh, henna clauses or quite a few purposes for which he is writing this letter. And he lets us know those purposes throughout the bulk of his epistle. 
And it's not until we get to verse number three that John mentions his first purpose clause in the epistle. And so there he states this. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And here's the purpose clause. So that you also may have fellowship with us. And again, there are other purpose clauses that John states, and he does that throughout the entirety of this letter. For instance, in the very next verse from the verse that our text is taken from, or the verse that we just read, he also states another purpose clause. There he says that he is writing this letter in order that our joy may be complete. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, My little children, another purpose clause, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And also chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life. And certainly as we hear these clauses, these purpose clauses, they all sound very pertinent to our lives as Christians. They are relevant to us, but they do come to us in a particular order for a particular reason. In John chapter 2, he is also writing to encourage individual segments of the church. So his purpose is not only to equip and encourage, but it is also to make sure that they understand what it is to be in the community of faith, to be in fellowship, as it were, with God himself. And without the first purpose clause, without the having fellowship with us, all other encouragements really don't make sense. All other encouragements don't have any eternal significance. In other words, without fellowship with the apostles, whose fellowship is with the Father and the Son, then any other purpose that John may have writing to Christians literally falls to the ground. I mean, what difference does it make if his purpose is to write that we do not sin if we do not have fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ? Or what fellowship, or what purpose would it be to encourage them that they have eternal life if they have not gained eternal life? It really doesn't make sense. So again, there's an ascending order of purposes that he gives to the readers. In other words, John starts with the first things first. Without this first purpose clause of fellowship, again, nothing else really matters. And if there is no fellowship with us that John says then according to his logic at the end of verse number three, there is no fellowship with the Father and fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. And one thing about fellowship, it's one of those kind of words that's often taught about in religious circles especially, as if it can just mean any old thing. You know, if we desire to come and have a good meal together with other churches, then we assume oftentimes we are having Christian fellowship. Or just because we have uh, ethnicity in common or we have other things that we like to do in common sports or whatnot, then oftentimes we use the word fellowship 
We just taught that word around easily and flippantly, but the apostles would know of no such things. Because when they talk about fellowship, they are talking about something exclusive. They are talking about something in particular, something that ought to matter to where we are as Christians. What is the meaning of this fellowship that John is emphasizing in this context? And again, the word fellowship has many different nuances. It could be termed partnership. And this is seen in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul thanks God for the Philippians' fellowship, he says, in the spread of the gospel. And if you are familiar with that text, uh, what Paul is doing in the whole entirety of the letter is he is giving thanks to them because they have partnered with him in the spreading of the gospel. Paul goes over to Philippi, as you know, leaving Asia Minor, and this is the first area that he goes to in the continent of Europe, and there he finds Lydia, and God opens her heart, and she is converted. And it's by no happenstance that Lydia happens to be a woman who is well off. The first thing she does is she invites Paul and the ministerial company to come and stay with her in her own lodging. So there's a fellowship that is beginning there. There's a partnership that is starting to take shape there because of who God invites into the company of the fellowship of this Philippian church that they are enabled to help him in his ministry in the gospel as he maintains that ministry throughout all of Europe. And so Paul is thanking the Lord for their partnership, for their companionship, as it were, in the spread of the gospel there in the, book of Philipp- in the book of Philippians. It is also a sharing in common. And we see this in Acts 4 and 32. Where the disciples held all their possessions in common with each other and considered nothing to be their own. Another use of the term fellowship. And we understand that, right? The, the, the disciples in the early uh, church in the first century, they had all things in common. That's that word, fellowship, koinia. They had all things in common. They brought all things together, and they openly shared what they had with one another. That no one lacked anything, and no one had more than they needed. All things were in common. Again, another biblical use of that word. But in the context of 1 John, Fellowship is something in particular. It imbibes these nuances, but this is a sharing in the very life of God. Reading from the New English Bible translation in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, it reads this way. What we have seen and heard, we declare to you so that you and we together may share a common life. That life which we share with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now think about the immensity of that statement and how we are to understand this, right? That they are to share a common life, and according to the context of verses 1 through 3, the eternal life that John proclaims in these verses is the common life that is to be shared, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you, which is the very word of life. 
The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have heard and seen so that you also may have fellowship with us. The fellowship that he is talking about is the very life of God himself. I mean, think about that. That we are in fellowship with God. That we have, as Christians, the very life of God. And this is why John can say in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So whoever has a son has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. Have you ever really contemplated that and meditated on that? That we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. That we have the very life of God, which is eternal life. No one else can say that other than Christians. And every other fellowship that we have must flow out of the fact that we are in union with the life of God through Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, you know, they're, they're, before Christ, we had no life at all. I mean, yeah, we walked around and we talked and stuff like that, but we were more or less like dead men walking, right? That's what Ephesians tells us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he quickened us. He made us alive together with Koine, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the life that we have is the very life of Christ. That's true Christian fellowship. To share in his life. And that life is eternal. And when we talk about eternal life, it's not just duration of days. But it is also the very quality of the life that God has that we ourselves possess. And this is why we get many admonitions in the word of God about how we are to live our lives. Right? Our very lives are to be hid in Christ. Why? Because he is our life. So you think about it, it's not that we live a long, 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 long time, which we do with Christ in eternity, but we live such a wonderful quality of life that no other people in all the world have except those who are in fellowship with God. And you ask yourself, what kind of life does God have? What does God worry about? Therefore, brothers and sisters, what are we to worry about? Is God disturbed by the changing scenes in history? No. Then why should we, if we possess his very life, if we are in fellowship with him? And this is what the Bible indeed teaches, that we are indeed with fellowship with, we are indeed in fellowship with him if we possess the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the apostle is on about as he opens up his letter. He wants to make sure that first things are first, that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things, that his people indeed have fellowship with them, the apostles, whose fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. So the question, therefore, is then what is the basis of this fellowship? 
How does this fellowship come about? Am I born into it? Do I sign my name on a dotted line at a church row and now all of a sudden I am instituted into this fellowship? Do I say a prayer at an altar? Make a confession of my sins? Is that all it takes? But it's so much more than that. That the basis of this fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, is to believe a particular message preached by particular men. That is how it comes about. And this is what the apostle again in John is on about. The basis of having fellowship with the Father and the Son is to believe the apostolic message preached. And he lays emphasis on that message being apostolic. That's significant. That's important. It's not just any old message that has come to us by any old personnel. But it is a message that has come to the people of God from those who were there with him in the beginning. Anybody can say anything about what they've seen and what they've heard. But the question we have to ask ourselves, were they there, right? Were they there? We have all kind of messages in our day. We have all kind of religious movements in our day. We have all kind of men who have seen all kind of visions and who have written all kinds of books and have all kind of followers in our day. But the question is, were these men there with the Lord Jesus Christ when he appeared, when he came into the world? Were they eyewitnesses? And so he stresses that emphasis in the opening up of his letter. The emphasis stressed upon eyewitnesses, this seems to have to do with the nature of the false teaching that was spreading throughout the church. And again, according to 1 John 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it reads this way. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now already exists in the world. So we see a kind of we, we see something key here that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And those that deny that, which apparently was going on in this context, is not from God. Those believing that Jesus Christ was not truly man, that he lacked something in his humanity that we possess, that he didn't have a real body and a regional and rational soul like we do. And there was all kinds of different kind of doctrines that was floating around in his day, but simply to put it, that they didn't believe that he came in the flesh. And yet, John stresses empirical evidence by multiple eyewitnesses that saw him and were there with him in the beginning. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 1 and 2. And Luke is writing an account to Theophilus, and he says this, 
For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed amongst us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. You see what he's doing there? Luke, he's writing this gospel. He's writing an orderly account. He's going to keep on writing even to the first century church in the book of Acts. But he's setting out to write these things that have been witnessed by those who were there. Eyewitnesses account. And this is significant because even the Bible tells us that on the testimony of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. Right? This would hold up in any court of law. If people were there and they saw the events and their declarations match what happened in life and they bring them all together and they're all saying the same thing, then why would not we believe that testimony? So this is what John is on about. Encouraging his readers to know that I, even I, John, the age of John was there. And even John is not preaching to them alone, but he uses, you know, he uses the plural uh, pronouns as he's talking to them in his writings. And in 2 Peter, Peter does the same thing in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him on the holy mountain. They were there, beloved. They were with him. They saw him in his humanity. They even were privileged to see him in glimpses of his glory. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, when as it were, it was like he had peeled back some of the radiant glory that was there, that ineffable light that they were privileged to be in the presence of. And they heard God speak from heaven to his own son. And they witnessed these things. They were eyewitnesses of these things. And you have to really think about that. They spent over three years with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These men were with him. Historically, they were there. When he slept, they slept. And he slept. And if he was not a man in the flesh, what need would he have of sleep? I mean, it's just all these things that are so important to understand about his humanity, right? He slept. He had been ministering all night. He gets in the boat, and he goes over to the other side, and the storm is raging. Remember that scene? And the disciples have to go and wake him up. Why do they need to wake him up? Because he's dog-tired. He had been ministering all day. Have you ever been there? I mean, tired, tired, where, you know, just drizzling down your beard. Not you ladies, of course, but just tired like that. And the storms didn't bother him. There was no supernatural sleep. He was tired in his humanity. 
And they woke him up, Lord, do you not care that we perish? He wept. Which of us has not wept? He wept in sorrow when his friend Lazarus died. He was moved with emotion, so much so that tears welled up in his eyes. And he had a good man cry, as it were. He wept. He got thirsty. There's a woman at a well. Jesus had been with his disciples walking upwards of 20 miles. Which one of us would not be thirsty in our humanity? He thirsts. This is just not an opening line to give, a, you know, to give a testimony of himself, but he was actually thirsty. Yes, he used it, but he says, give me to drink. He ate. And I love this about Jesus. He ate with sinners, with publicans, with tax collectors. They loved to invite him over to their houses that he might eat with them. And I'm sure our Lord ate heartily the food that was prepared for him because he's a real man. He showed compassion time and time again in the Gospels. We see the Bible said that he's moved with compassion. He sees people hurting. He's moved with compassion, right? Is this not common even in our humanity that we are moved? Even unbelievers at times are moved with compassion. Unbelievers, all these things. Why? Because it is common to our humanity. And he bled. The Bible says that. A spear was shoved in his side and blood came out of his body. And if that doesn't take the case, he died. Phantoms don't die. Ghosts don't die. People die, and Jesus Christ died. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, what would you have thought if you had been with Jesus? There may have been times when you might have said, is this guy a real, I mean, who does the things that he does? But yet, John tells us that they observed him. They looked upon him. They gazed intently at it. They looked into his eyes. They saw the deep humanity that was there in our Lord Jesus Christ. The beloved apostle John was the one that often laid his head on his breast. And so, beloved, this is the apostolic witness. They knew who he was. They knew what he was. And no matter what anybody else says, long as we hold to the testimony of the apostles, we too ought to be assured that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that's not a small thing, that he has come in the flesh. Because had he not come in the flesh, beloved, he could not have been the atoning savior of our sin. So the apostles preached together again. This is not a single eyewitness account, but this is the account, empirical evidence of men who were with him, men who saw him, and men who testified to the world of his goodness. And we too stand in line with these men. That's why we preach nothing other than the apostles' doctrine. It is the sole faith that was once delivered for all times to the saints. 
We don't need nothing else. We don't need no new testimony. We have all we need here in our Bibles. We have all the testimony we need to have fellowship with God from what the apostles have told us concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when they preach him, they preach him for who he is. They don't deny the reality that he is the eternal word of God. Yes, he is a man, but he is more than a man. They don't leave that out. He is Jesus Christ, eternal God and eternal man. In one body, Jesus the Christ, that's who he is. And they make no bones about that when they preach. In verse 2, the life was made manifest, right? And we proclaim to you, what? Eternal life. They are proclaiming a person that possesses eternal life. That's who they are proclaiming. This is, best, uh, this is the best commentary on the first phrase that we see in verse 1, where it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus who is the very word himself, the Lagos, who is life, the word. From the beginning means Jesus was there when creation began. He is eternal. He had no beginning, and and he will have no ending, right? He is both the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is not part of creation. In the beginning, he is the source of all of creation. All life comes from him. The book of Colossians puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul tells us, for by him all things were created. Right? By him all things were created. Right? So if, if, if he's the creator of all things, then how can he therefore create himself? As some would want us to believe, that he is the first of creation. No, he is the creator of all things. He was with God when the beginning began. He was there, eternally God. And, you know, it's interesting that when you think about the, when you think about the testimony of the scriptures, they got it. They knew what Jesus was saying, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they understood what he was on about. That's why they hated him so much, right? They taught it themselves about being Abraham's seed. We are Abraham's seed. Who are you to tell us anything? You know, hinting that you are a child of fornication. We really don't even know who your daddy was, right? But he is telling them, before Abraham was, he doesn't say I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. Oh, and that pissed them off, (laughs) right? They picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because they understood exactly what he was saying. He himself, a mere man, making out himself to be equal with God? That is Jesus' own testimony. 
And either we're going to believe his testimony or we have to declare him a crazy man. What other options do you have, right? If somebody was walking around here today and was declaring themselves to be God, run. Because we would have to assume that he must be crazy. Unless it's true. And by the evidence of scripture, we have come to find that his testimony is true. Even John in his gospel says the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 14, right? And the word was made flesh. The word from the beginning was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. So he is the prototype. He is from the beginning. He stands at the head of all creation. He is, beloved, eternal God. So the most fundamental assertion of the text is that Jesus Christ has eternally existed with the Father. And everything else flows from that. He is the eternal word. And as Christians, we know this, but this is always important to be emphasized and reemphasized, especially when people begin to come in our church, our churches. And one of the things that is just interesting in our day, you know, we don't want to be offensive to anybody. Because we want fellowship with everybody. We want to just all be able to get along. And this is apparently what was happening in John's day because it wasn't like there were those that were infiltrating the church from without, but they were homegrown, as it were. Why? Maybe because at times we can be laxed in our doctrine because we don't want to offend people's sensibilities. But doctrine, yes, it divides, but it should divide. It must divide. It has to weed out those that don't have true fellowship with us. Amen. Other way, uh, in other words, if not, then they will grow along with us. But yet they will have another, another message. Not the message of the apostles. Amen. Therefore, we must reiterate the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That yes, he is God. We can't equivocate on that. And he is fully man. We cannot equivocate on that. Because it is a testimony of the scriptures. So he must be preached as the eternal word and he must be preached as the incarnate word. Those two things matter. The incarnate word, and we see that in verse 2. It simply says this, the life was manifested, right? Made known, revealed. This eternal life was manifested. This is what we, you know, we have all the empirical evidence of, that he, he, he became a man, he was incarnate, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. He who was eternally with God has been made known to us, and we declare him to you. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we, see, not I, you know, but and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the very revelation of the very person of God. 
See that in John chapter 14, that text that we're all familiar with, right? In verses 6 through 9. Jesus unto him, he says, and that's uh, the disciples he's talking to, Philip. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father. If you have seen me, you have seen my Father. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. He wants to see God. And I'd be happy with that, just to kind of paraphrase what he's saying. Lord, if you just show me him, right, everything else would be okay with me. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet ye have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. See? All that God is essentially is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the express image of the eternal God. He is the icon, as it were, of the invisible God, right? I mean, he would be the app you click on to see God. He is all that God is bound up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John knows, hopefully, as well as every Christian, that without this doctrine, that without the declaration from the apostles, that without the, the doctrine of the incarnation in particular, the manifestation of God to man, that there is no substitute, uh, substitutionary atonement for sin. Amen. Jesus had to become a man in order to die for the sins of man. Bulls and goats couldn't do it. Because from the beginning, it wasn't a bull or a goat that died. God had been making sacrifices for his people since the beginning of time after the fall, right? Adam sinned. And the wages of sin is death. When Adam sinned, yes, he was separated from God spiritually, but he still moved around physically. But yet physical death came even in the garden. There was an innocent animal somewhere in the garden that had done no wrong. And God, as it were, slew that animal, took the coats of skin off that animal, and wrapped Adam around with it. Substitutionary atonement was made for man's sin even there. But it was an animal. A glimpse of what God would do. This is why even in the gospel when John sees him, he said, behold what? The Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Those that were being sacrificed, those animals, over all those many of years were pointing to one who would come and do what those animals could never do. They were just types and they were just shadows of the reality of who was to come in order that we might have fellowship with God. And remember, man sinned. And man needs to be made right with God. 
But in our fallen state, we cannot be made right with God because we cannot complete the covenant that God set us out to do. Adam failed. And we all failed in Adam as our representative head. When he fell, his fall was great because we all fell in Adam. We are guilty in him. Therefore, Jesus came. The father sent his son, the last Adam, who did what the first Adam failed to do. Lived a holy and righteous life. You ever wonder why Jesus Christ had to be born? How come he just couldn't come down from heaven and just go straight to the cross and die for our sins? Because babies are born in sin. So he had to go through the womb. He had to capture every part of our sinful being as a righteous human. So there he was born in the ordinary way. Like all of us have come into the world. But yet he was a righteous baby. A righteous embryo. Whatever that is, he was it. And he lived a righteous life from the womb to the tomb. And he did that for us. And that righteousness that God required of us, he obtained for us. And that very righteousness is the righteousness that he gives to us in the gospel. Hebrews 10, 3 and 14. And I'll leave you with this. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Christ speaking, Here am I, it is written of me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and, and the, uh, again as he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest speaking of the high priest of our souls, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice necessary for sin. Why? Because the perfect man has come. And we have fellowship with him. We have eternal life because we have believed the testimony of the apostolic doctrine. 
that he is the eternal word and he is the incarnate word. And we are to proclaim that until he comes back again and enjoy the very life of God that we have been given through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 God bless you.